and it's more like saving memories and stuff you know i think you can probably tell from my background there's all kinds of stuff going on here yeah. my wife just feels uncomfortable in my office like, this is so much clutter <laughs> like, and uh and doug's got you got the you got a guitar there i, I love good zoom rooms yeah. you know so i think i think that's the place to hoard stuff i think i think the key in, in the end is it is is an awareness that there is a point at which it is junk yeah. and to and to tread that line <laughs> right i do call occasionally and it's usually like i can't remember where that came from and we're moving or something like that and I'm like yeah okay, this, calls this are can great. Go now if i calls can't even remember fun. where it came from yeah absolutely when you feeling. pick it up and i think meaning drains away from objects like it's fresh we just got back from italy and look at it so something like and it's fresh it's full of meaning and the meaning literally drains out of it and one day you pick it up eight years later it's like what the hell is this thing with? you know then it's junk hey everybody it's the data-driven marketer sponsored by netwise i'm adam i'm mark and i'm doug Welcome back for another Hang in the Data Basement. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks to our guest this week, Doug Kessler, who is creative director and co-founder of Velocity Partners. Uh, this is the point where I'll just throw to you, Doug, uh, Wait, to give us a little bit about your, your background and how you ended up at Velocity and in marketing, et cetera. You're making me do my own intro? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> All right, lazy guy. I'll lazy. do my own. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I started it, uh, it. I was like an ad guy in junior high. I knew I had to be an ad guy. I was really into advertising. Really weird. I even did a, a paper on like the use of water in menthol cigarette ads. And it was the coolest project. But the um, so like right out of college, went to Ogilvy, New York, Madison Avenue. It was the whole scene. I loved it. And then kind of got the B2B bug weirdly. I felt a little bit silly doing consumer marketing, you know. I was on Dove and they said, it's a beauty bar, it's not soap. And I just thought, oh, really? I just couldn't really do <laughs> consumer marketing. And so we had the AT&T account, learned about computers, and like, this is cool. And I became B2B, never looked back and ended up moving to London. And, you know, with Stan Woods, started Velocity, which is all B2B tech. And you know, got in early on the content marketing boom and kind of rode that. And so we've had a really fun ride and now got all sorts of clients that we absolutely love across the piece in a, in a B2B tech. So that was way better than, than what would have been my mechanical bio read. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Although, <laughs> although in the course of the read, I might've been uh, able to refer to one of my, I was looking at your, doing my due diligence before we started chatting, looking at your LinkedIn profile and I like that your first couple jobs, you just list your your position as suit. Yeah, I was. At Ogilvy, like, yep, I was a suit. Was... I was an account guy. And it was an ill-fitting suit in every sense of the word. So what was your what, what did you find as your main besides the 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 squishiness of, of branding in B2C? What what was it that really helped you or made you think I need to pivot to the, the B2B space? You know what? A part of it was I felt a little bit dirty about manipulating people i got on a fabric softener account also lieber brothers and it was like the strategy boiled down to be a good mother use this fabric softener and i thought oh man you're manipulating women who already feel like 
some sensitivities about whether they're a good mom and you're going to use that to sell this junk, which does, I mean, you don't even need it. I mean, it's fabric softener. Like it's so disposable. So I just didn't feel good. Actually, I was a little bit naive. I think I was harsher than, than I might've been like, but I just didn't feel right about it. So I I prefer to convince somebody to do something, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we, we actually talk about it frequently here because it's, it's something that comes up in the data space. You know, I have my own, the company that we work for here that sponsors the podcast ultimately helps with B2B audience targeting. And in the B2B space, I feel way better about the idea of here are the things you can do with the data and that's interesting and the targeting. Because in business, everybody wants to be better at business and they want to grow their business and everybody wants to make money at their job. And, you know, yeah. and so it's all, it's a very different playing field than the idea of pulling consumer targeting information that starts to get weird and political and, and sometimes very sketchy if you don't follow or the invasive. right rules. And, yeah. You know, yeah. so we are very specifically focused on B2B with our company. So so it's very it's very clean in that way. You can keep it compliant, you can follow the rules, and you can feel good about what you're doing and enabling in the data space without the creepiness of what has become the political discourse around tracking and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's right? funny you say that because I, you know, I never do. I look at all like the Facebook, um, you know, blow up things and I, I never really think that's the same business I'm in. <laughs> but you're right, in a way, a lot of, you know, it, we are using data this way. I suppose it's so obviously like I want more relevance. If you're going to advertise to me, I want you to know who I am. I don't want yes. this junk that has nothing to do with me. I guess that applies to my consumer life too, but it's just, were they fair and open about how they got it, you know? You know, that's, I just want that kind of trust. It's, it's so weird how we have this connotation of, of marketers and advertisers as like, you know, 1984, big brother, we're watching your every move, your every decision, et cetera. Yeah. And then you, you actually talk to the marketers and we're like, these are, we're all really good, like yeah, empathetic, nice creative people. people, you know, and they're like nice, we're like yeah. nice, you know, uh, empathetic for the most part and inspiring uh, storytellers, you know, that's, I, I felt like you had a, a great piece about work demanding creativity, you know, um, mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in the search for meaning, uh, the piece that you wrote, right. which is really, really cool. Highly recommend folks, uh, check that Thanks. out. Um, we'll, we'll link it in the bio, um, in the show notes, sorry. And, um, yeah, it's just, I, I find it so fascinating that there's all these, you know, th- this just weird universe of, um, misinformation, propaganda, all that that's attached to data and the controversies that's erupted, but you get behind the scenes and the people that are, that are activating the systems are generally really well-intended and want the best outcomes. Like you talk about in, in that piece. It is funny because like it's, I think a lot of us object to what they're doing. They're collecting this data and why they're doing it. It's like, oh, that's all right. Yeah. Advertise to me. That, that's not so bad. I know that once right. you've got the data, there are some other horrible uses for it. And so clearly we have to be on guard that way. But yeah, it, you know, what's weird is that I'm long enough in this profession that the equivalent for me when I got into advertising was... um was psychology. That was this big, dark thing. Like they're using psychology. You know, it was one called, there was a book called the hidden persuaders. It was really big. And it was like, they're intentionally using psychology to make us buy things. It was this big uproar. I read the book and I'm thinking, of course they're using psychology. Why wouldn't anyone use psychology? It was just such a silly. It's almost, 
Well, it's like academic. Otherwise, we're either talking about it or we're doing something with it, you know. And and people get yeah. mad when you do something with it. And like, oh, you've yeah. got all this information. You know my psychographics. You know my uh, this and that. My my whole cookie trail. And and we're like, wait. In a way, that's good. In a way, that makes the the ad experience more relevant. But it does have that dark potential underbelly it's, that we're always suspicious. It's of. also just not any yeah. different than than things like one of my. Not to immediately jump down too deep a philosophical rabbit yeah. hole, but you know it's kind of what Go we're really for here it. for. <laughs> it's not any different than what you do in person, right? But when yeah, we exactly. move into the digital sphere and we can quantify things, everything feels weird. But you know, if I meet somebody at a networking event, I make a bunch of instant judgments to try to talk about whatever. And and the reason people like graphic T-shirts is because. It keeps me from having to make a judgment. I can just immediately go, Springsteen, huh? Like, yeah, exactly. now we're, we got a thing, and it's like, I didn't have to track you. You told me. But now yeah. we have a thing we can talk about, and you know, and, and then it turns into the stories. And especially if you're at a networking event, it becomes the story of why we should connect professionally. And yeah. everybody's happy. I mean, you but go to a goes, shop. You just tracked my interest in Bruce Springsteen by looking at my shirt. Gross. That's right. <laughs> you, exactly. you go into your local <laughs> shop and if he forgets you and doesn't know, it's, hey, Doug, how's it going? And knows what you want to buy. Like, you expect that. And I, I think the data world has- The usual. Give me the usual, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's like, you know, we haven't made the case back in the world. It's like, first of all, it's not your fucking data. You're on my website. It's my fucking data. <laughs> like, you visited here and it's my job to- figure out what you want. That's what I do here. And I know there are plenty of moral lines that are crossed along the way, but some of this is like, come on, grow up. This is, this is how business works. Well, you're allowed mm -hmm. to guess, but you're not, you're allowed to guess and be right, but you're yeah. not allowed to use tools that would help you. It makes That's it feel right. like casino also, rules or something. Yeah, you're not <laughs> you supposed know. to be wrong either. Like people aren't going to like the post look cookie era before they solve it. Um, when, when all the ads are utterly irrelevant, it's like, why are you showing me dog food? I don't have a dog. Like that will annoy people. People will remember mm -hmm. what blind marketing was like. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like you get, uh, I'm searching for, uh, men's leather jacket and I'm getting red women's shoes. It's like, okay, uh, I'm in the clothing space. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I'm, I'm in market for clothing, but I'm, you know. I, I want you to do better. <laughs> I think you can yeah. do better. Yeah. Well, that's the, <laughs> the funny thing, thing is because in the early days, it was like, I looked at a blue dress and now it all shows me the blue dresses following me around the internet. And even my mom knows how that works now. And now yeah. it's like, why aren't you showing me the blue dress? You know? Yeah. It's funny watching, you know, like, like generation to generation. I remember there was a period where with my parents, they were totally comfortable with the idea that our address was in the white pages, but they were creeped out by Google <laughs> maps. Right. And I think of that constantly as generation after generation. I think, you know, I have my youngest sister is 11 years younger than me. And when I ask her about issues of tracking and stuff, she's she 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 is closer to expecting what I think is kind of like the marketing utopia that we talk about on the podcast sometimes, which is ultimately I only ever have to see things that I would be interested in when I would be interested in them. And that's it. I don't have to, you know, have the experience of watching the next generation reruns and, you know, sort of being subjected to all of these geriatric pharmaceutical <laughs> ads that, you know, hey, somebody out there needs that stuff, but I'm not there yet. And they yeah. don't know that. So 
it's it, it's almost funny when you, you know, sit there and go, who do they think is watching this right now? It's, yeah, like, it's, it's like the eye in the sky syndrome. Data. Yeah, right. It's always that, and it's you know, it's funny that people are worried about the things they generally shouldn't be, and are not at all worried about the things they should be panicking about. But um, I mean, you know, I don't want to give marketers a free pass. There's been some bad stuff and some yeah, just sleazy sleazy stuff that's unnecessarily sleazy with data and you know it marketers have ruined it for for people by doing that so like really if we'd all been straight had integrity from the start we'd probably been a better place yeah so and it's usually knock it off a, a <laughs> small percentage as with as with any community i find yeah. it it's the it's that five percent of assholes that are just a part yeah. of any and we can cuss on here, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Um, sure. But you know, you, you you're gonna have any any good thing, uh, whether it's like you know a sports team, you're gonna have a bad apple in the bunch. It's like there's gonna <laughs> yeah. be somebody who's who's just n- more in it for themselves and less in it for the team, you know. And I think you find that w- across industries, across um, you know, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. I mean, <laughs> right. Wikipedia is yeah. a great example of a place in the digital sphere where. If you get the percentages right, you can keep keep the general pool clean, but yeah. you need that offset. You know, you need the, to to offset the five percent nefarious. You, you need the at least twenty five percent engaged in squashing the nefarious. Yeah, I think. Yeah, the funny thing is, it's not even usually not so much black hats and white hats and bad guys and good guys. It's it's like a lot. We're this is all evolving. Like this is new, and so where the lines are isn't always that clear. And you know, we've had clients say to us, like, and we say, well, where do you get that data? And like, oh, I just scrape it off Facebook. It's really cool. Like, they, they don't know. No, you can't do that. Or, you know, so it's still early days. And so it's not like there's a clear, clear moral line. We're all trying to find it. And for the most part, everybody knows this thing runs on trust. We really don't want to betray that trust. You're right. They're the jerks out there yeah. who don't care. Hit and run. But most brands have something to lose and they, they want to get it right. Yeah, they do, and they and I feel like a lot of that, you know, now we're we're in such a, um, there's so many niches, there's so many specialized uh, ways to attack the storytelling. You know, now you've got your agencies, um, you know, there's there's kind of like blockers put in place to make sure, okay, these you know the budgets are being run properly. You've got you've got your your agency managers um, who are checking out privacy and all of the different. Um, you know, components of, of, of targeting and addressability in your storytelling. Um, I think that it's, it, it's easy to get kind of swallowed up in the, the nefarious behavior out there and kind of lose sight of the, all the, the good content marketing and the good um, data collection uh, that's, that's going out there and helping people, you know, succeed in, in delivering, um, in delivering great experiences, great customer experiences, um, or great products, you know. Yeah, at some point it's like basic, it's professionalism. It's like data isn't, I think of data, it's not numbers. It's like, this is people talking to you. They're telling you what they want. They're telling you what they like. And it's like malpractice not to listen, you know, and to reflect what you learned in in your subsequent activities. It just feels like basic professionalism to me. It's it's a thing that's actually come up with a number of our guests, that idea of, of you know, like if I could plaster on the wall in the office, it would just be, you know, data is people, right? Yeah. Remembering that, like, it's easy to look at those analytics dashboards and stuff and, and forget that ultimately that data is whether explicit or implicit, it's it's people implying, you know, like it's people telling you what they want. Um, yeah. 
you know, or how they feel about your brand or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, that really ties together the whole idea that, you know, we call the podcast is called the data driven marketer, but that almost feels like a, a sneaky way to pull in the people that we're trying to remind of that humanity, because yeah. what we end up talking about and most interested in talking about here is the aspect of what it really is, is the collision of that data science and software and, and the part of marketing that you just can never squash out. It's kind of the equivalent of where engineering hits product. And you have that thing of the user experience people are always there with the engineers clashing and the engineers are saying, well, the easiest way to do it would be this. And the UX people are going, yeah, but that's a crap way to do it. And people won't like it. That's kind yeah. of the marketing and data science. It's the same thing. Like we have all kinds of interesting tools, but ultimately we're still trying to tell this human story. And so you can learn things from the tools and you can have that guide your story, but you still end up with this, you know, thing at the end where you can't hire it completely for data. You've, you've got to go back to the storytelling element and find the things that resonate on a human level with people. And that's always, that's not always mechanical, right? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes a lot of the data tools are about optimizing. Like you start from a starting point and you get better and better and better, but it's like, well, what's that starting point? Like you can't optimize from the ground up. You got to have an idea somewhere. You got to have this thought and, you know, so there surely still has to be, this sense of empathy in it somewhere, you know, I sometimes think some marketing ops flows are like content is this colorless, odorless liquid you pour into the machine and it'll work, you know, like yeah. it, but it's no, it's like, it's actually, they don't move from this logic node in the nurture flow to that one, unless you do something to them, like unless you talk to them and make them listen and change their mind. And, you know, otherwise they're staying right there. They're, you know, it's going to bounce off. And so, I always think it's a bit like multiplication, like you got to have the great plumbing, but it's times great persuading is these great results. Mm -hmm. And if either one is of those is zero, the result's going to be zero too. Yeah. There's a great, um, I don't know if you've read Robert Saldini's book, um, persuasion, 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 right? Yeah. 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 He talks, you know, he talks about the, um, the Hare Krishnas at the airport you know, they, it's like, they give you the little flower, you know, <laughs> and there's this, oh, yeah, that's there's right. this it's a sort of like expected reciprocity that, okay, now you've given me this, this tiny little flower. Now I need to sit and engage with you in conversation. Right. Um, yeah. And you so give it, me a flower. I give you the rest of my life. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Fair had a few of those conversations. And Which, so we kind of think about, it's like, yeah, I'm volunteering yeah. in a way, you know, the, the fact that I'm sharing with you, my personality, my, uh, my taste in music, my taste in art, my taste in photography. These are all things I'm volunteering to the internet. And it's, and we kind of have the same now expectation of if you're going to advertise to me, uh, then I want you to reflect, you know, show me a mirror, you know, hold a mirror up to my, to my behaviors and, and tell me the story of your product through the lens that I've given you, you know? I feel yeah, like I that's, guess, you know, it's first party data. We all probably feel comfortable with. It's like, I'm on your site and Spotify is great for me because it knows me. And, you know, I expect that it's the third party stuff that starts getting people creeped out. And I, I have seen some models where it's like, I'm the consumer, I will hold my data and I will release it to you as an on as needed basis, but almost like, you know, I'll, I'll say if I want this website to know stuff about me and what it wants to know. And I like that idea of that control shifting. And, um, you know, I think that's gotta happen really, because at some point, the balance has to be struck. So is that flower content marketing? 
<laughs> Not to yeah, too it, hard from the previous point. <laughs> but in the early days, it was. I think in the early days when content marketing was new, it was like this massive advantage. It's like, wait, you're giving me this ebook, man, just for me? It's like, wow. You know, and it's like, wow, it's full of advice. It's good for making my job better. You know, I like you. You know, I'll give you my time. And over time, I guess we're talking about, you know, marketers ruin everything. And in this way, you know, content marketing, uh, now it looks more like an ad transaction often, which is you're, you're, you're just, it's just an ad in, in other clothes. But those who do it right, great content brands, yeah, it is that flower. It's kind of like, here, here, I want to help you. I'm going to add value here. If you like that flower, it's not just the sentiment behind it, but if it's, a, you know, it helps you out, then you'll give me some more time. You know, you earn it. Well, it's funny that we're here doing a sponsored podcast because ultimately I, 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 I frequently think of the idea of, you know, the Ovaltine radio hour or whatever it was, yeah. right? Like, like all of TV, everyone is really familiar with content marketing in a sense. That's all of broadcast everything because, yeah, you know, until, we, until you evolve to the product placement aspect of things, we're really just trying to make some stuff so that people will buy ad time on our network, right? Right. Um, it's just evolved in that space where everyone has the capacity to make that stuff now to publish books that look just as good as the books from the fancy publishers to make podcasts yeah. that sound like radio shows, you know, videos, et cetera. And, and so, yeah, there's an emergent thing, but you know, same thing. I feel like I'm saying often it's, it's not really anything different, but I'm curious yeah. from your perspective, living, you know, sort of living and working through that evolution you know what do you, is there a distinction for you that's clear between i guess content marketing and marketing content maybe would be the way to say it <laughs> yeah you know what i mean in a way content marketing has dissolved into the mainstream of b2b marketing for sure it's just like imagine content free marketing it just doesn't really doesn't stack up but you know, and for the beginning of content marketing, there was this kind of apartheid of like, we're not promotional, we are, you know, helpful. And that's what this is. And if you're going to promote, you're an ad and you sit over there and it's not part of this. I feel like, look, if you believe in your products and services, an ad is also a help to your audience. You're telling them something they ought to know. It's a continuum. And, you know, the the, the amount of promotional uh, content in any content, you dial up, you dial down, but it's the same thing. You know, we're still in the same thing. And if your ads aren't helping someone do their job and you don't believe in your products, well, you've got some other, you got bigger problems than the line between content and, and promotion. Um, for me, if you really believe in your stuff, it's all fair game as long as, you know, <laughs> it works. It's it's really interesting. I think that's that's a great way to segue one of your, this piece that I, I really loved is about searching for meaning uh, in marketing, you know, and, and you talked about, your journey from a very large uh, ad agency to starting your own company. And I think, you know, probably the autonomy, if I were to in, into it, um, you probably enjoy a lot more autonomy now, but you probably have, you know, you're, you're trading that off with for headaches in a different direction. Um, but it's interesting, the search for meaning um, in, in a field of ostensibly widgets, you know, you've got all these different products, you know, we're, you know, a product is a product. Um, to some people, a product is a, a lifestyle or a, a solution or kind of a, a miracle for other people. And, and for me, I, the thing I always enjoyed, I started off in 
this this marketing journey and SEO um, and the competition aspect really always kind of gets me gets me going. I'm a sports guy. I love you know outranking a competitor, beating them in search, you know things like that. Uh, for B two B, it's a little it's a little different. You know, it's it. I mean, there's certainly a rankings to to conquer and and um, auctions and all all that fun stuff. But it's it, it's less about I feel like it's less about cannibalizing someone else's opportunity and kind of really creating uh, a sense of placement, like finding, hey, how can we work together to achieve shared goals? You know, it's not about, I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe, maybe that's not the right way to think about it. But It's not a um, zero sum. I know what you mean. I yeah. mean, in some markets, it's, it is cutthroat zero sum. I'm going to win, you're going to lose. In mm-hmm. a lot of art clients, they're inventing something new. So they're selling a new way of doing something. And it's less about head-to-head competition with someone doing the exact same thing. It's often about, um, you know, a substitute the way you're doing it now. It's status quo tends to be an inertia tend to be the big obstacles. And for a lot of our clients, some note they're in the, they're in a, a knife fight on the street with, with one other vendor or two, but a lot of them, it's much more evangelize something to break the inertia and make people want to, you know, change and do something differently. Well, and that, you know, it's one of the the principle that always has has served me the best throughout my career and the evolution of all of this stuff is the algorithms and all that kind of stuff when you talk about SEO like sure there are optimizations that you can apply but in the end they're still just trying to find the best answer for the query that somebody put into a search engine and providing the best answer in the most friendly format just making good content has has never gone away as yeah. the thing yeah. that will actually win and be evergreen because the algorithm is still going to be solving for good content and yeah. you know it's yeah. really one of the things that Mark and I connected on early on and you know Mark has has gone further down the rabbit hole on the technical side but we still sort of come back to the same thing which is we just make good content all the rest of it kind of doesn't matter, you know? And I think I, I can think of a lot of really specific use cases, you know, things like that first dollar shave club ad that really knocked it out of the park. Like yeah. that made that whole company and all they were That's doing right. was standing out. Cause they had a creative ad that was, you know, easy to make for the, you know, creative founders. And, or then yeah. I think about like all the Nike spike, spike Lee ads and stuff, you know, like Nike was yeah. one of the first brands that I was very aware of that was very clearly not shell- selling the shoes. <laughs> Yeah. Right. It was just sort of like, yeah, the shoes are there and stuff is happening. But then people end up talking about the ads because the stuff is cool. compelling enough. It's and, a cool factor. Right. And that ends up punching through the, all the other competitors who were there going, our shoes help you jump the highest. And so I, like, I can't believe how, <laughs> you know, it's so clear when you see that a, some real mojo and proper brand just leaps out in B2B. It's just like in Nike's world, like most consumer brand. They, they kind of get this, whether they're good at it or not. It's another thing, but they're in that game. Whereas in B2B, they don't yet. A lot of brands don't know they're in that game. It's like, mm-hmm. and they'll think, oh, well, Nike can do that because they're Nike. It's like, no, they're Nike because they did that. You know, right, that's right. what made them Nike. <laughs> and you can be the Nike of supply chain management or whatever it is. If you just want to like stand up and believe in something instead of, you know, hammering home your features. You know, and just plain mojo can leap out of B2B markets because it's, you know, people converge on the conventions of B2B so fast. It's like 
let's all talk like this in any given market. And so anyone who says, no, I don't want to talk like that will really stand out. I love that. A lot of that goes to, I, I keep coming back to enchantment. You know, Guy, Guy Kawasaki talks about don't sell me, but enchant me. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, that's, so. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, this is and full disclosure. This is my first time working in, in a purely B2B context. So I come at this with a very, you know, B2C mindset. Um, and so well, it's, that's it's a good really, thing. I think I wish more B2B folks had B2C mindsets. I think we're missing a trick and not getting the emotional side of brand. And, you know, people go too far. The, you know, the whole Simon Sinek start with why and the kind of meaning of a brand. And people will take that too far. Like, you know, we're saving the world one purchase order at a time. It's like, no, you're not. It's like, so you just, you just took it too far. Like, can't you stand for something that's real? Like, if it's about, you know, procurement, it's about waste. We hate waste. We just hate waste everywhere we see it. And that's why we do what we do. That's like, there's some reality there. There's some meaning and mojo and, you know, it's not bullshit. So it's finding that, that we love. That's what I love with our client work. It's like, what's the real thing going on here? Why does this matter? You know? And if you can tap that, you get all sorts of different kinds of content. It's just, it's not just convince, convince, convince all the time. It's also, you know, resonate with people who are like you because they care about the same things, you know, it's a different brief and it's way more fun. Well, like, like we've been talking about it, you know, there are humans at the end of that chain, even if it's B2B. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, consumers, you're trying to influence them directly. So they buy your product. B2B is, is like you said, it's this weird sort of game of there are humans there. And, And you're right. I do think a lot of times we forget about that part and the strength of, well, let's what's, but what's the actual story? Cause you know, you could even have a subpar product, but if people believe in the story and they get on board and then you get that momentum going, I mean, like you said, the, the really interesting thing in B2B is how fast you can see the shift of, I mean, I think with the internet consumers are starting to react faster in that way. Sort of the shift of culture. It seems like the cycles and every time, you know, Duran Duran gets popular again for like yeah. six months, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's tightening up. It's, it's faster and faster every cycle, but yeah. like, but, but in B2B, it's like, like you said, I think best way to track it is to see how quickly buzz terms start showing up in your, in your webinars and meetings and stuff. You know, it's like yeah. somebody says the term synergy and somebody else likes it. And suddenly everybody's saying it, you know, like yeah. now everybody is double clicking on things to, to drill down and it's it just, That's you know, right. you can, you can just browse TikTok endlessly for people making jokes about all the corporate lingo, but, but it really is yeah. an articulation of like the quick flow of memes through. And, and I mean, memes from like a academic standpoint, not, you know, stupid images yeah. with text, <laughs> but like memes, you know, you can, you really can track the flow of memes through a business, you know, scenario. And in the data, which, which ends up really interesting, but then I think people still don't apply that idea of, can we get our version of, you know, money, it's gotta be the shoes and then watch that flow through the B2B, you know, ecosystem. It's still a lot of, you know, can we get people familiar with the idea of inbound marketing? Like, yeah, that's right. It doesn't matter if you have a cool mascot that everyone recognizes. Yeah. Cause that could work too. You know, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> with, with your clients, do you find that it's uh, that it's generally them coming to you saying, "Hey, we need to differentiate. We need to 
you know, we need to clarify our voice, help us clarify our voice. Or are you the one saying, taking a look and auditing the space saying, guys, you're saying the same thing everybody else is saying. We need you to differentiate. How, how does that flow of information typically work? Yeah. At, I mean, at a lot company? of our clients come to us for voice and differentiation and it's, we kind of built the, the agency on that. Like we, we do our own marketing in a different way. And, and the people who resonate with that are like-minded marketers. So we already are going to start in a better place. So a lot are coming saying, help us stand out and help us find the voice and clarify the story. And, Sometimes it's like, help us grow. It's it's not as specific as that. And we would say, part of the problem here is your story's not very clear and or, mm. or your voice is like everyone else's and you've got an opportunity here. So it can go either way, whether they've already identified kind of voice and differentiation and mojo, we call it as, as the mm. thing missing, or we're the ones to mention mojo as the, as the big differentiator. And, you know, in software markets, they converge quickly around features and it's harder and harder to really leap out with uh, with the product itself. And so Mojo can be a massive differentiator. It can really be the difference, you know, someone yeah. who just talks with confidence and attitude and energy, and they love what they're doing and they're a bit playful about it. It's just refreshing. You want to do business with people like that. Totally. So, so as happens with the best episodes of this, I have a bunch of notes left of things that I've could have brought up along the way and wanted to, but the conversation didn't go there. So we'll have to have you back for sure. Um, okay. We're almost out of time. The one I do want to hit though, is to, to double all the way back to the beginning. What, what about water and menthol ads? Yes. Yeah. I had that. I, had that I noticed as a kid that yeah. menthol <laughs> cigarettes back then it was print advertising. You were allowed to advertise cigarettes. And so every magazine was full of cigarette ads. The menthol ones always had men and women in front of water all the time. So clearly they're, they're trying to kind of signal coolness, you know, and I noticed it in one ad, then another, then another. It's like, wait a second. Like, this is a strategy. Like, this is not just like, you know, this is happening. So across brands and I collected like 30 examples, took me a lot of time and I'm still bitter about this. The teacher said, good job. Too many examples, too many examples, <laughs> too much it's data. Like, the whole no point was this is not just one brand doing this or once this is a thing i, I still am angry about it and i never yeah. got to have my say there's like i got a good grade but too many exact what flipping is a problem for you or something like come on i worked hard everyone had glassine like it was a little slip like it was beautiful yeah right <laughs> i remember those um no those were um well were... i hadn't thought of it but but I, I can really clearly imagine all the billboards and print ads and the, you know, just, just bikini clad women floating in a, in a splashing in a inner tube in a pool. Yeah. You yeah, know, well, just, actually there I was will... a lot of orgasm imagery too, but I didn't go there thinking I'm in junior high, I'm going to get in trouble, but there was a ton of climax <laughs> and erection right. cigarette. There was a lot of that going on too. Yeah. That's the thing that it's like, they're, they're putting, it's subliminal, you know, and that's the, that's the thing I realize is, yeah, you're like, oh my, like these are all kind of kind of subliminal emotional appeals, right? Is that that to, to borrow a buzzword uh, that's ubiquitous? Yeah, well, you know. you know, I mean, that's what everyone was alarmed about when I was getting into the business was like they're doing they're hiding messages like sex in these ads, like that's not hidden, that's like right out front, like that's like looking for obscure references to aquatic mammals in Moby Dick, like it's there, like you know, it's it's right in your face, but sometimes there's these little tropes you think wait why is that repeating why is there 
why is that always happening there? And I think you're right. It's, it is a quite an intentional subliminal thing. Well, and the, the, one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up is it, it also made me think of an early paper in my career of sort of dissecting the stuff that was for an aesthetics class in, in, in college, uh, the mm -hmm. philosophy of art basically. And it was paper I was writing was, you know, trying to dissect the difference between fine art and say, you know, the graphic design and an ad that you might see. And I was kind of treading on the same topics, which was sort of like the art is existing sort of for the art's sake. And there's a lot of layers and there, you know, same subliminal stuff, but it's all just for the point of like, here is this art. Whereas yeah. the ad and the graphic design is kind of deploying the same things. But like you said, you start seeing these tropes and these memes and these things that are, it's, it's, it's almost a more advanced type of manipulation than just creating fine art where, you know, you go, oh, that's beautiful. And I'm not, I could look at it for hours because I don't know why. And the ad, it's a yeah. little, but then also it creates the space to discount it because you look at it and go, oh, I know what you're up to. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, you... like, nobody said that about like Michelangelo's yeah. David. Oh, I know what you're up to. You're just trying yeah. to impress me with his strength and power. It's like, you know, it's like we, you're, you're, you're making me feel something, but you're not making me feel something. So I buy your stuff did, like that. Yeah, we didn't difference. have the skepticism of the profit motive, you know, in the right, Renaissance. Right. I think people were. Yeah, but they, they, were they had, they had plagues too, to, to focus on there. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, yeah. it's, it was the patronage motive or whatever. Yeah, they you sold know. that. Like they sold that right. Medici was a good guy and was going to go to heaven. There was something on sale going no, that's on. That's true. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'll buy that. You, you, you convinced me, Doug. You convinced All right, me. Mark, I, like I need to know your <laughs> punk band name in high school or in college. What was the name of the punk band? You're going to love this. Crash Everest. Nice. How long did it take you to do that? And like, was that like a three month oh, was all, band argument? It was our, it was our bassist, Chris Jones, who works for Corona. He's, he's brilliant. And he thought of it off the spot. It was crash just, Everest. Yeah. It's good. And then it's I did good. most of your graphic design. Crash Everest into, into Spotify. Am I going to get any music or do you, mm -hmm. is this still back on cassette tapes or something? You know what? Oh, I will I send you, I will, I will mail you a CD. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> I, so it's I, not say, on Spotify. I don't know how proud that, I am of the graphic design. That is that. a promise from me to you, Doug. I will. <laughs> All right. We have, we have thousands, uh, that I would, and I oh, would love wow. to, I won't mail you thousands. I promise. Um, yeah. I mean, that's another great yeah. example of the yeah, evolution of this stuff. On Spotify. You have thousands because that was probably the minimum print order at the time. Yeah, I have so exactly. many boxes of t-shirts where it's like, I have 250 of these. Cause that's the least I could order. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I, I love digital. I do too. I mean, oh. yeah, if we had Teespring, oh my God, dude. Kurt, can you imagine if we, the Crash Everest, so much more Shopify, fun. and Teespring? So much more dude, swag fun. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Is there oh. a Crash Everest t shirt going out there somewhere? Do you have one? Oh, you I never made a t shirt. Did we make a t shirt? I think it's so. good. was as advanced as we got. Stuff to give away gigs. Was, yeah. My brother and I were in bands, and he, you know, he was in more than me, but they, all of us spent a lot more time naming the band than practicing, which is why nobody knows any of the bands. <laughs> well, that's why we're here in marketing. Yeah. And, and, and my wife is the professional musician who's like, I can't right. keep myself from doing it, but I would rather not. She doesn't care about the names or the whatever. She's like, I just want to make music. Why do I have to do all that shit? Well, make she'll probably make it through because it's, uh, I mean, the Beatles yes, is probably the worst band name in history, and it did it right. hold them back. And all they did was change one letter, and yes. that was the marketing. You know, that's that. So now, 
But boy, they they made it happen. What, what part of London are you? Speaking of the Beatles, where, where uh, I love London and uh, it's in Barnes. It's the southwest. Yeah. There's a little bulge in the river down here. And yeah. There's no tube station in the middle, so it acts like a little village. It's only six miles from Piccadilly Circus, but we got the river and the park, and it's really nice out here. That's that's awesome. I spent a summer in, in Regents Park. Stayed at, at oh, Regents wow. College. Cool. Back in yeah. Good city. Okay, cool. Well, let's land this plane. Thank you so much for joining us, Doug. This is great. Sure, great my pleasure. Chat. I enjoyed and it. Like I said, plenty more notes, so we'll have to have you back uh, to cool. dive in further down some of those philosophical, aesthetic rabbit holes, etc. Sounds great. Otherwise, thanks also to our listeners. Uh, like, subscribe, you know, whatever buttons exist wherever you're listening to this, because we put it everywhere. And uh, this has been another data-driven marketer sponsored by Netwise. I'm Adam. I'm Mark. I'm Doug. Take it easy, everybody.